Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on November 28th, Lord's Day Service. Words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, May the preaching of your word make us strong and courageous to act like Christians in the work to which you've called us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the passage where Jesus sends the 12 disciples out on an authorized mission. And the reason I word it that way is because the word used for send in verse 7 is apostello which is a cognate of the word apostle. And so that means the disciples are on an official mission as official representatives of Jesus. Jesus sends them out two by two. He gives them the power to expel demons, though we see in verse 12 that their task is also to preach the gospel. Jesus instructs them to travel light, to not be fussy about their food or accommodations, and to shake the dust off their feet when people reject them. And, he tells them, to take some oil for healing. And the proper way to read this story is to see the mission of the 12 disciples as a charter for subsequent Christian mission. That doesn't mean that every physical regulation Jesus gives the disciples in verses 8 through 10 is meant to be binding for every future Christian mission. For example, there's no indication that the Apostle Paul observed the physical regulations that Jesus gives in verses 8 through 10. But there are some basic principles we can learn, and these principles apply to Christian mission for us today. And so in this passage, we'll see that there are four patterns of faithful Christian ministry established for the church. And so the first pattern is that we are personal representatives of Jesus. We are personal representatives of Jesus. Look again at verse 11. It says, if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And of course, you read that and you think, why are they supposed to shake the dust off their feet? Well, he tells us why in verse 11. Jesus says to do this as a testimony against them. 
And so what you're seeing in this passage is that the apostles are sent out, in verse 7, they're sent out as the apostles of the Lord. That is, they're sent out as the authoritative representatives of Jesus. And in ancient times, a man's representative was to be considered as the man himself. And so that means if you reject the representative of Jesus, you reject Jesus. And so when the disciples are welcomed into a house, then peace comes to that house. We see that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. And when the disciples are rejected, judgment goes to that house. And so that means the gesture of shaking the dust off of feet is a warning that the house that rejects Jesus will be cut off from the kingdom of God if they fail to believe Jesus' representatives. The church, too, throughout the New Testament is the custodian of the kingdom of God. And that is true into the present day. And so that means for you, church, if the people listen to you, that's the language in Mark chapter 6, verse 11, if the people listen to you, or if they don't, well then that serves as the tangible evidence of whether or not they receive or reject Jesus. In other words, a person's reaction to the people of God is the tangible evidence of their view of Jesus. Why? Because we are personal representatives of Jesus. Our mission as the church of Jesus Christ is an extension of Christ's work in the world. We live in this world as the voice and action of Christ. And Jesus uses his imperfect people to minister to the world. And so that means when we go, we go in his name, not our own. We preach what he taught, not what we prefer. We work by his power not our own, and thank God. And so that means you are personal representatives of Jesus. And before we move to the second pattern in this passage, let's make one more observation about this point. You are personal representatives of Jesus. And so think about this. To represent someone else is to deny yourself. And so part of maturity is coming to the recognition that you are not the best and greatest thing in the universe. God is. And we call recognizing this fact humility. And so the immature person lives their life representing themselves because they think they are the greatest thing in the world. They think glory comes through me being me. The mature person, however, represents someone greater than themselves because they've come to the recognition that I'm not the greatest thing in the world. Now, this often gets corrupted. In other words, there are cases in which people represent something greater than themselves, but they do it in a way that gets corrupted. So, for example, someone might realize they aren't the greatest thing in the world, and that's good. But then they go on to seek uh, they, they seek to represent someone or something greater than themselves. Again, that's good. But what they do is they become a representative of their favorite sports team. Or they become a representative of their favorite politician. And what they're doing is it's good that they recognize I'm not the greatest and I need to seek glory through someone greater than me, but it becomes corrupted because they're seeking glory through their favorite team or their favorite athlete. And that is less than the ultimate glory of God himself. 
And so, so that's why they wear the shirt that has the logo. They rep the team. And so when that team wins, they, as the representative, feel entitled to a share of the glory. But that way of doing it is a corrupted sort of representation. Because when your team wins, that doesn't provide the real glory. That doesn't provide the glory that your soul craves. It doesn't provide eternal glory. Why not? Well, because while the zealous sports fan does well in representing something greater than themselves, they fail to realize that there is something still higher than their winning team. And so the mature Christian realizes that they are representatives of Jesus and that this is their glory. And so that means we Christians, we still root for our team, but we don't live and die with it because we've died and lived in Christ, the one we're really representing. And so the first pattern that we see in this passage is that we are personal representatives of Jesus. The second pattern is that we don't go alone. We don't go alone. Look with me at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So we see here that Jesus sends them out two by two. And we know that working in small groups is intended to be a pattern because we see Paul doing his missionary work with a team, a large team, in fact, it seems. You see this in Acts 11 and Acts 15. So why, in God's wisdom, is the ordinary way of mission with a team rather than solo? Well, there's probably lots of reasons, but in the Old Testament law, testimony in a capital case required at least two witnesses. Well, think about what that means. That means that at least two people together establish the truthfulness of the message. And so that means two people together in unity articulating something with conviction and clarity is more persuasive than if one person does it. And there's another thing. Working in pairs may also help us guard against ministerial individualism, which happens to be a large problem in the American church today. Working in pairs helps us guard against ministerial individualism. There's always been this temptation in the church to boast in certain men, to boast in certain ministers, to boast in their writing ability, to, to boast in their quick wit, to boast in their large audience, to boast in their personality or their influence or their book deals. But the design is that ministers work in the local church as a team not as a one-man show. And the two-by-two pattern establishes the necessity of teamwork. And we see that necessity not just in the local church, but we see it even in the home, in the ministry that takes place in your home. This also is not a solo operation. Ministry, whether in the local church or in your own home, ministry is hard. And that's why we don't go alone. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 10 says, When one falls, the other picks up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. And so the first pattern in this passage is that we are personal representatives of Jesus. The second pattern is that we don't go alone. 
The third pattern is that of anointing with oil. That's right. The third pattern is that of anointing with oil. Look with me at verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now we have to be careful with this passage because it is from this passage, Mark chapter 6, verse 13, that the Roman Catholic Church argues for their sacrament of extreme unction. They also use James chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, which reads, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, so what is the commonality in these two verses? What's, what's the commonality between Mark 6.13 and James 5.15? Well, in both verses, the call is to anoint the sick with oil. And so from these verses, the Roman Catholic Church made their sacrament of extreme unction. And so what that means in the Roman Catholic Church way of thinking is that when the situation is in extremis, as they say, that is when the situation is really extreme, when the situation is a sick person in an extremely difficult situation at the point of death, then, according to the Roman Catholic Church, the priest takes the oil that's been consecrated by the bishop and anoints the sick person with these words, and I quote, through this holy anointing and through his most kindly mercy, may God pardon you for whatever sins you have committed through seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, or tasting. And so in the Catholic sacrament of extreme unction, they think the oil gives the power of forgiveness of sin and healing of bodily sickness. In a word, they think the oil leads to the salvation of their soul. That's how they're using the word sacrament. The word sacrament for them means a transfer of saving grace. It means a transfer of final salvation to their soul. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church has seven such sacraments. So what do we Reformed Protestants say to this? Well, there's quite a lot to say, and we don't have time for most of it, but let us be clear on the key points. First, we assert that there is no deep, mystical mystery in the oil. In other words, there is no sacramental power in the oil. And by that, I mean there is no transfer of final saving grace through the oil. And there is no transfer of healing through the oil. And this is readily seen throughout the New Testament by how much freedom the Lord and the apostles exercise in the matter of healings. For example, in John chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus made mud from saliva to restore sight to the blind man. And I've always wondered why the Catholics don't have that as one of their sacraments, with mud and all. Also, Jesus healed people by touching them as in Matthew chapter 9, verse 29. Still others, Jesus healed by just a word, as in Luke chapter 18, verse 42. And in the same way, the apostles healed some diseases by word alone, like in Acts 3, 6, by touch in Acts 5, 
and some even by touching with a handkerchief in Acts 19. And so what we see is that during the time of Christ and the apostolic age, the Spirit gave power to Christ and the apostles to perform these divine healings. And we see that oftentimes these healings were accompanied with a symbol. And that symbol throughout the New Testament varies. Sometimes it's oil. Sometimes it's mud. Sometimes it's, it's saliva, as we'll see later in Mark. Sometimes it's a physical touch. Sometimes it's a handkerchief. And sometimes that symbol is just a word. And so, yes, these healings happen throughout the New Testament using these various symbols. Now, does that mean that the symbol used is the instrument of healing? Does the mud heal? Does the saliva heal? Does the handkerchief heal? Does the oil heal? Is the symbol the instrument of healing? And the answer is no. The mud and the oil are not the instrument of healing. That is, the healing power doesn't come from the symbol. It doesn't come from the mud or the handkerchief or the oil. Psalm 45.7 reveals that through oil, the Holy Spirit makes known His gifts to His people. And so, back to Mark 6.13, why do we read that the apostles healed people by the method of anointing them with oil? And why do we read James in James chapter 5 telling the apostolic church to anoint with oil when they pray for sick people? Well, it's because when someone was healed by the apostles or the elders of the church, the healed person might be ignorant about the source of the healing. And so the apostles and the elders use a symbol, in this case oil, so that the healed person in their ignorance might not give credit to the apostles. And the language in James 5.15 supports this explanation when it says, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. You see, you anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. And so that means when the apostle prayed for healing for the sick, they used the symbol of oil to signify that this healing is through the power of Jesus Christ. And so the Roman Catholic Church treatment of this passage really is, is an anti-pattern because this passage does not support the Roman Catholic Church's sacrament of extreme unction. Nevertheless, when understood rightly, this becomes a pattern for Christian mission. You have to realize that most Protestants stopped praying over sick people with oil as an overreaction to how the Catholics abused these passages. And so to close the loop on this point, let me anticipate one of the common questions about healings in today's era. Obviously, obviously the Lord doesn't seem intent on dispensing miracles like He did during the apostolic age through the apostles in these supernatural flourishes. Nevertheless, the Lord is indeed present with His people in every age, and He heals their weaknesses as often as He deems necessary, even when it's without the supernatural flourish. And this he does no less than in days of old, only without the outward spectacular manifest display of supernatural healing. 
And even today, if someone wanted to pray for a sick person using oil, I would not tell them no. As long as they use the oil as a mere symbol of God's healing power rather than as a sacrament. And on at least two occasions, the elders of this church have prayed over sick people with oil. Not because we think there's a transfer of final saving grace or a transfer of supernatural healing in the oil, but because we're commanded to do so in the Bible. And so we prayed over sick people with oil because that oil is a symbol of the power of Jesus Christ through the Spirit to heal. And so the third pattern for Christian mission is that of anointing with oil. The fourth pattern we see in this passage, the fourth pattern is a wartime lifestyle. A wartime lifestyle, I think, describes what's going on in verses 8 through 10. You know what I mean? You know, when there's war, the people back at home, they live in this, they live in this different fashion. They live in this sort of sacrificial way so that they can dedicate all resources to the war effort. That's what I mean. The fourth pattern is a wartime lifestyle. So look with me here at verses 8 through 10. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So, of course, we read these verses and we immediately wonder why Jesus doesn't let them take more provisions on the journey. And in the immediate context, for the disciples, this creates urgency for their mission. It creates the necessity of trusting God and God alone for their provisions. So apparently, apparently doing the Lord's work does not require an excess of material provisions. Faithfulness to the task is more important than whatever material possessions you have. And so for the Lord's work, if you gave me the choice between someone with little money and little material provisions, but bottomless wells of joy, or someone with lots of money and lots of possessions, but a shallow supply of joy, why well, take the joyful poor guy every time? Why? Because this passage makes it clear that having an abundance of material provisions is not a prerequisite for doing faithful ministry. In Mark chapter 6, the restricted provisions reflect something about the character of their mission. To go on mission in this way is an expression of extreme dependence on the Lord. They do not travel first class. They do not come like an invading army pillaging the land. The 12, because of these restrictions in verses 8 through 10, the 12 disciples go humbly, totally dependent on God for their support. They come with no bells, no whistles, and yes, we have to point out, no fog machines. They do not seek personal comforts. When you are on the Lord's mission, apparently comfort becomes inconsequential. When Jesus sends out his disciples, their first order of business is not getting the finest accommodations. They are not sent out on a vacation excursion on the fifth day of the mission trip. Why not? 
Well, because, and this is really important, because no one will take seriously messengers who claim to bring an urgent message of life and death when it becomes evident that their first concern is to secure their own ease. In other words, to put that more simply, preoccupation with luxurious living undermines the gospel's gravity. And the reason I emphasize this point is because we are Americans and we tend to overprioritize our own comfort. And so this fourth pattern that we see in this passage for faithful Christian mission is that of a wartime lifestyle. And so in conclusion, I commend to you these patterns of faithful Christian ministry, the pattern of representing Jesus, the pattern of not going into ministry alone, the pattern of anointing with oil, and the pattern of a wartime lifestyle. And so this week, consider how you can faithfully implement these patterns when applicable in the particular mission that God has called you to. Let us close by praying together. Heavenly Father, we know that in losing all comforts, we have lost nothing of eternal value. Make us pilgrim people whose hearts are free to follow the patterns you've set. You are our everything, Lord Jesus. Make our labors in your ministry fruitful, and may we serve you with the fullness of joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.